Hello and welcome to That Science, exploring the meaning of science today. I'm your host, Amelia Doran, and today's episode of What Science is all about objectivity. In Is That Science last week, Susan discussed the importance of contextualising history of science in order to understand our reactions to science today. I want to take that further, and with my guests, Maxine Lynn and Nell Bevan, both course mates on our Science and Health Communication Masters, We'll explore some slightly existential topics, like what do we mean when we think of the truth and is science really free from external influence? Here's Nell and Max to explore some more. Hi guys, thank you so much for joining me. Hello. (laughs) So um, Nell, do you want to start and just introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. So I'm Nell. Hello. Um, I do science and health communication, like both of you. Um, And before this master's I did a degree in biology with science and society at Manchester as well which is basically just a fancy way of saying I did biology with like a bit of history of science um and now here I am perfect and Max so hi I'm Max um I did chemistry in York well technically it's medicinal and biological chemistry and now I'm doing science communication in Manchester as well I didn't know that was your degree title. That's really cool. Yeah, so it was more like specified. So with the option modules that I've done, it's more like medicinal, pharmaceutical, and like synthesis kind of things. That's so cool. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. And now we're all doing Psycom, and mm-hmm. it's great. Are you guys enjoying it so far? Yeah, I mean, I, I really like it. This is like, I think I kind of did it because I wasn't, I knew I wanted to do something with my biology degree that involves something creative um afterwards and I didn't really know what so I thought this was like a good path to figure that out and so far it's been great yeah it was similar for me it was more like it's a lot more creative it's very different from like all the proper pure science that we've been doing but it's been great it does a lot of like option modules it's it's like you can always do like different things you're in the same course but there's so many choices yeah, I think for me, I was like, I don't want to sit in a lab and just like not see anyone for mm. days on end. So I like the vibe of being able to talk to people. And I also quite like working with kids, which I know most people don't, but I'll find some children. Okay. Not in a weird way. <laughs> can't relate, can't relate. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay. Our focus today is on objectivity and we can kind of split that into two parts, which is what I try to do for you guys a little bit. So we've got science as objective truth. So can science be 100% true or infallible? And then we've got objectivity in relation to the outside world. So can science be removed from the wider context it sits within? So I thought we'd start with objective truth, go for the big swing right out the gate. But um, do you guys think that science can ever be 100% true? Big question. (laughs) I think it so depends on the type of science. I think all of this is going to be like, it depends on the type of science. Because you could say like, I don't know, I thought about this a bit before. I did some preparation, <laughs> by the way. And I was like, biology and medicine is so difficult to say if it could ever be 100% true. And then things like physics, like astronomy, there's also degrees to that, which it's like we view ourselves as so Earth-centric that it's also quite difficult to say, can any of what we're observing be really true? But then things like chemistry, like... A graph is a graph. Yeah. Like, or like we this know, is how you interpret it. Yeah. Or like, or like <laughs> we know that water is like hydrogen oxygen. And like, again, you, you could go into such a philosophical debate of like, that's just how humans perceive everything. But let's just say that that is truth. I feel like it's so many different layers. It's so difficult to... Yeah, I think the thing that came to me was about the 100%. That's why I asked the question in that way. Sorry, sneaky. But yeah, I think there's sort of the degrees to truth. I found a really cool example, which is why I was asking you 
if you studied chemistry. Nope. Um, but Max, when you did like chemistry in sixth form and then when you started mm-hmm. university, did you have those moments where your teacher went, you know everything that we've taught you so far, it's all actually a lie? Yeah, it's Forget always it been like this. So like from GCSE to A level, well, I did IB, but basically from going that and then going to higher up in the grades and then going to university, all the teachers are going to be like, okay, scrap everything that you know. This is all new. None of those we've already told you. They're all wrong. It's just like a simpler way to tell you what it means. But actually, it doesn't actually make any sense. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because the way that that works is quite analogous to the way that chemists actually saw atomic structure and stuff. The way that we learn it in stages is the same stages they had. But I found a really interesting example where um, a guy, his name's Arnold Summerfield, Mm -hmm. in 1916, he assumes that in the atomic structure, all the electrons are like balls, like actual like little balls that orbit around the nucleus the Mm -hmm. same way that we orbit around the sun. And from that assumption, he makes this formula about absorption and emission spectra, which are basically when you shine a light at an atom, you'll get certain places where an electron is pushed out of the atom. Is that basically it, Max? Yeah. Ish. Yeah. Enough. <laughs> Enough. Um, but so he made this uh, formula for those spectra based on the fact that electrons were balls. And then it turns out that electrons aren't balls. They're very weird. We don't really understand them. But even though we know that that isn't true, his formula still works. So like, it is true, but it's not true for the right reasons, which I think is why they're like 100% true thing feels weird to me like yeah I mean and especially in chemistry it's harder to understand because it's not something that you can see so you're trying to put it into an analogy that you could understand but it's never completely how it actually works it's just trying to say like oh it's a ball because that's the only thing that is close enough that we can relate to but it's never really the case of how things work in such a small scale yeah I guess I didn't really think about that, but yeah, it's got to be something that we can understand. And Mm. if we don't understand it, then how can it be true? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think also, I mean, I'm sure maybe we'll talk about this later as well, but it's interesting because there are situations, I think, in which taking it to be 100% true can be like the repercussions of that have different, like, let's say with this example, which I don't really understand because I didn't do chemistry, (laughs) but I'm like, sure. No, um, with that example, like, I'm sure there are lots of repercussions for the way that's applied to chemistry at large. And then especially when you're trying to do real world, like applications of it that affect people or like technology. Um, But there's also such clear repercussions of this in biology. Let's say it's also like that then influences like hundreds of years of like social behavior. And that can be really like dangerous (laughs) i have i have another biology example as well just because when i was looking for them and i think this one really is weird and i very much appreciate this fact but before darwin lots of people were trying to work out what happened in terms of evolution and this guy i can't remember his name i'll put it in the show notes um suggested that during embryogenesis like pregnancy you go through all the stages of failed evolution so you go through a fish reptile um and then up to like bird and then finally to mammal and that's like the pregnancy and he he proved that during embryo stage there is a time when you have slits on your neck that are kind of like gills and everyone was like oh my god we must be fish <laughs> like we must be fish and so he was saying that there was a time when during pregnancy the embryo was a fish but turns out that that is true but obviously we we aren't fish there is no pregnant women walking around with fish in their wounds but that he had some evidence 
to say this thing is true and then it turned out that that evidence was true but his assumption was not yeah it's, it's actually really funny this is what like i did one of my our recent essays on looking at the way that people interpret science because that's i guess that's what this is all about you could say that the fact is objective but then the person has to then deliver it somehow so the way they do that changes it completely um and f- for that specific example i was looking at pregnancy a bit as well because the idea of the egg and the sperm creating a baby is actually relatively recent because if I guess we think about it technically it's like you might not assume that having sex equals a baby because sometimes it doesn't always lead childbirth there's like miscarriages and there's periods and your cycle and especially in humans our cycles are so dependent on the environment as well that it's it doesn't exactly you wouldn't imagine that that equals that kind of thing but then when they first viewed the sperm and the egg and realized okay these are two separate things and these are the things that make an embryo which make a baby there was then people who thought like spermists and ovists like people who thought that oh it must be all the man and like they're like the key to unlock the egg but it's the man that makes the person or people who are like okay no the sperm just like provides energy and then the egg is actually the person already and then it wasn't until like much later that they realized through genetics as well that like oh no it's actually a bit of both um like obviously like a 50 50 split um but it's, it's that kind of interesting thing that like that is all to do with it that is fact like we have a sperm and an egg but then it was delivered so wrong for like a hundred years. So I think our very disappointing answer is we have no idea whether it could be a hundred percent true, but that's fine. Then another factor that we have to consider is what do we consider to be true, I guess? So, you know, when we look at science, especially when you study science as a subject, you know, through school, when we do experiments and stuff, we always end up with the right answer. Or if you don't end up with the right answer, your teacher's like, well, you didn't put this thing in. And you're like, ah, okay, that makes sense. But I think there's a very big leap between that and the like experiments that you do as like actual scientific researchers. Though it's something that was in one of the articles that I asked you guys to read was the experimenter's regress, um, which was basically how do you know something is right? You either need to know what answer you're looking for or you need to know that your experiment is working. So I don't know. I just thought that was a really interesting idea. I think that was one of the reasons that you constantly had to repeat your experiment just to make sure they all come up similar. And then you go, like, oh, yeah, that must be right. If it all came up the same, it must be working and it must be right, right? Yeah, I think it kind of, <laughs> this is a really stupid example, but this, it like did remind me of this. Did you ever see that guy who, like that flat earther who tried to prove the earth was flat through an experiment? And he, this is relevant, I promise. But he he set up a series of boards, basically, with holes at different heights. And then was like, if I, or at the same height, sorry. And he was like, if I shine a light through at one end, it's going to come out straight because they're far apart enough. If the earth was curved, then the light, you wouldn't be able to see it. But because it's not, I'll be able to see it straight through. That was his hypothesis kind of thing. And he was so sure about it. And then you watch him on camera, basically watch it fail because you can't see the light when they lift it up straight because the earth is curved. Um, And that's such an interesting thing. The way that scientists work towards their hypothesis sometimes, like that's a really specific example because there is a very clear wrong and right. There's no like decimal places that you can assume means something else or an outlier you can move out the way he keeps repeating it and the same situation will always happen so that's like a kind of a niche example but it is that thing of if he could see like a little bit of light he'd have been like see even if it was just a tiny bit because the torch was too bright or something um like anything to prove your hypothesis sometimes it's like the way people work which is almost similar to like the school stuff i think it's interesting because again going back to my conspiracy theorist themes from the last episode i did you have so much of like a confirmation bias i was really worried about that during my um 
project, my final project at uni, because I was like, I predicted something and it happened. Have I just made it happen? Invented the truth? And I think, I don't know, there's absolutely conspiracy theory. I promise I did not fake my results. <laughs> but um, I don't know, I think if you're working towards a hypothesis and you're so sure of it, and then it doesn't happen... Do you just accept that as it not being right? Or do you think, because I think he's like, oh, well, I think the board wasn't set up right or something. And that's his like response to it. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it, like we're getting so philosophical because I think it speaks <laughs> like a wider human nature thing as well. That is like sometimes an assumption that you're always, not always right, but it's been interesting doing the science communication degree because, you know, I'm interested in science. So I kind of always assume that like, yeah, people love documentaries. Like, why wouldn't they? They're really interesting. Mm -hmm. And it's a similar thing. It's like, oh, I mean, I assume this is right. And like, why wouldn't it be? I've done enough work on it to make me know enough. And like, this is kind of a niche area, but maybe I'll be really interested in that. And other people will as well. And I guess it's kind of a bit of a loose connection, but it's a similar thing that if you've done so much of this type of experiment or you've studied so much of this theory, you're like, well, I do know what I'm talking like and not in like a condescending way you're like oh I do know what I'm talking about I put in the hours to understand this so sometimes it is also like shocking when something goes wrong because you're like does that mean like everything I've studied is incorrect or everything I know is wrong it does feel like well whenever something didn't actually went the way I wanted I always try to find if there's anything that I've done wrong I'll try to compare with other people like oh am I timing it wrong is it like Instead of 10 seconds, I should have done like five seconds. But realistically, it doesn't make that much difference. But it's just something else that I don't... It's just something that I'm not accepting that I could be wrong because science could be wrong. Well, I think it also speaks to what I think is the answer to the question of how do we define what's true, which is like context, basically. Um, and it dates back to Sextus Empiricus in the second century AD. Sorry, I was doing research. I went really into this. He basically says that the way that we define truth is by just all agreeing that it's true. And I think that's the thing. You know, when you're doing repeats, you get to a point where you're like, well, all of these have come out the same, mm -hmm. so it must be true. But, you know, we just decide we're a limit. We're like, if you've done 12 repeats and they're all exactly the same, it must be true. And you just kind of leave it at that. And I think it is just, it's that communal agreement of we're good now. We can accept this. Yeah, I think it's difficult. You don't want to get like too broad with it because you could be like, what is anything? How do I know yeah. I'm even here? Um, I feel like it's with the kind of question of like, oh, can science ever be objective? You kind of have to limit to it, limit it to like science and it's all like science and society and like what we consider truth in that regard. Because otherwise we're like, is this coat a coat? Or like, yeah. <laughs> what is colour or something? Um, but yeah, I think that's a good so there's like a saying, I don't know if it's in English as well, but basically in Chinese, it's saying that minority will f agree to what majority people are saying. So that's basically how you say that's how the society consider as the truth until, I don't know, another theory came up and being like, everyone be like, oh yeah, that makes a lot more sense. But before that point, people usually tend to agree with what the majority people agrees to. Yeah, I guess it's just waiting for the majority to move yeah. to something else. And that's when the paradigm shift happens. And yeah, and like even some, you know, recent things take us by surprise when they, because like science is constantly changing. Like it's only relatively recently that people realise that like the out of Africa model of evolution is the correct one where it's like all what we consider humans will have migrated from Africa and then that and spread across the globe. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't taught in schools until really recently because it's like being checked or whatever um but it's like interesting that you know even today when we consider ourselves really like advanced and like and things that seem like historical science like evolution where it's like oh but all the evidence is already there so we're just kind of 
going over the same thing again and again there are still loads of changes that can happen yeah I think it's that like trickle down you know do you ever have when you were doing essays people were like textbooks are a good place to start but they won't be up to date because you know they'll have been written like two years before they were published or something so if we look at that you've got like journal articles which can come out basically as on the last episode we discussed a little bit afterwards but not too far afterwards and then you've got textbooks but then if you go to like secondary school education and then down to primary school like you've got that delay in are we saying this is right because if we're going to teach it to four-year-olds like we've got to make sure that this is pretty close to true otherwise why would we teach it to them I think it's interesting (laughs) it's a good point but yeah so I guess the other side of it that we need to look is science within society so can we take the scientist out of the science I think and you know we're so tied to it it's reflected in everything from how we set the pipette up and where we judge the meniscus to be all the way through to creating the machines that read things so like spectrophotometers or writing computer programs you know you've got so much human within science can we can we take that out yeah I think it depends on the type of science you're talking about because let's say you're talking about using the specific measurement or a ruler or whatever um me knowing experimental stuff (laughs) using a ruler you could say like looking at that specifically yeah human created it but it is one centimeter let's say like that's the length it's going to be one centimeter universally for everyone who uses that system but then you could flip it to the other side and be like if i was just kind of stare at this skull like with a bunch of other people we could all see the same thing again i guess it's the interpretation part that is that comes into play here where it's like can you ever take that take that scientist out because like everyone could come to describe it the exact same way but if you then are like okay what does that mean everyone will have a slightly different answer even if they're all vaguely similar so you could say or oh, the majority agrees they'll all use different language to describe it they'll all have been educated in a different way so even if even if they've all been given the same set of instructions your context around that your social and like your own cultural history will completely change the way you then interpret even the method that you're given yeah so i've done a bit of school in china and in singapore so it's always been slightly different especially in terms of language and then you've always been taught in like such a different way so from the background that you're coming from you can always assume there's always like the assumed knowledge that you're putting into your observation and your interpretation i think there's so much behind you that influences how you think that we don't really think about. I don't think about the way that my upbringing has affected, you know, who I am and how I've got here, but also, you know, how I think day to day, but it really does factor in. Isn't that what we talked about in one of our lecture, the um, scientific asset? So from your upbringing and everything, literally everything around you kind of affected you. And from the day to day talking with random people that you encountered it's always kind of changes how you think about things so i would talk to different people if i was writing anything they'll always give me like different perspective and then well obviously there'll be like the other side or like the opposite and then you can always take that into consideration yeah no i think so so science capital yeah is as Max said is sort of all of the knowledge not just actual scientific knowledge but who you know the skills you have the way you think that influences how you kind of perceive science and yeah I think I mean I think it's really interesting that we all obviously have a certain amount of science capital in order to end up where we are now but we all probably had it in very different ways Um, and I don't know I think it's really interesting to think about how that might have influenced the science that we've done and the science that we do 
do we do science now? Maybe. I think it's also so clearly seen across a lot of science done. I feel like now contemporary scientists really try and move away from this idea of like, oh, my life has affected me and like I'm doing this really like objective science work in the lab and stuff. But if you like look back in history when they didn't have the lab practices that we necessarily recognise today, it's so, so clear the way in which people's own prejudices or own lifestyle or upbringing has affected them or even like identity, like with biological sex differences, we kind of recognise them today as we study them. When they first kind of came to fruition was like anatomical studies and comparative anatomical studies between male and female skeletons, basically. And, you know, those like differences were noted and then seen that, okay, they're seen across a lot of female skeletons, a lot of male skeletons. Great. Those are the kind of vague biological sex differences. Could have just left it there and been like, right, we can use that now to apply it to medicine or, you know, other things that could be really helpful or like beneficial to the wealth of people because those are useful differences to know about. But instead, the white male scientists who discovered them used it as the arguments that women weren't as intellectually capable as men because their skulls were smaller, so their brains must be smaller. And that means that they must be unable to hold that intelligence. Or this is where their womb is and their pelvis is shaped like this, so they must be made for child rearing kind of thing. And even when women's skulls were compared to children's skulls in terms of, um, oh, they're like less grown up, they're you know not as intelligent, it was found that actually the ratio of brain to skull bigger in children and women and i don't want to quote this exactly so the people who were interpreting this flipped it and then went oh yeah that, that's because then they're, they're closer to apes so they're still less advanced so they were disproved in their objective piece of science but they kept the fact the same because they were like oh no it's the same thing don't worry like don't you guys worry about it <laughs> yeah and i think it, it leads us on to the other thing that i wanted to talk about the same things that were applied to gender were also applied to race but i think one interesting example that we definitely have talked about in uh, class is eugenics and its relation to statistics so we talked about francis galton who is kind of seen as one of the fathers of eugenics but also is seen as one of the fathers of statistics because he was the one that suggested things like standard deviation and regression to the mean and so can we can we take the the politics out of maths hi everyone editing amelia here I realised I didn't include the definition of eugenics, so I've added one in now. Eugenics is a type of pseudoscience that Galton and his contemporaries founded. It used our understanding of genetics and reproduction to attempt to make the population more favourable, in their opinion. This meant reducing the amount of diversity, including race or disability. It also used our concepts of genetics to try and understand why the white male was the most superior, in their opinion. So, well, basically, I so I wrote this article, basically kind of talked about like fake news and then talked about politician almost using science as a weapon. So I don't think you can completely separate it from the society as a whole because in any way kind of you need a bit of you need a social context to actually do the science you kind of need to have the background and then say again like the fundings that you need from government so you always have like a perspective being like okay this is what I want to find out or this is the goal that I want to achieve so you're almost pushing yourself towards that idea and so coming back to the eugenics so it is good that we acknowledge that he did all the science which is bad but at the same time standard deviation is so useful so it's kind of this person's bad but at the same time he done some really good things definitely it's so difficult when they've, there's some things that we base a lot of not even just education off of but technology and like the way we live is so much based of a lot of his statistical work yeah um 
But I think also it's that thing, that actual maths can be taken away from that context and applied to other things. Whereas I think it's slightly more difficult to obviously like take because eugenics work out of context, because even when people have reused it, it still had this really weird taste almost. that's like, but you're still applying these concepts to this science. Um, so I think in terms of can you remove that scientist from that science only if you can also remove the science from the context and apply it to other places. And if you can't, well, it's not really fact then. Well, I guess a lot of science you can only use for one thing, but eugenics is such a bizarre one. Whereas the statistical stuff is like, you can easily, quite easily remove that from what he wanted it for and use it for some really like, for good kind of things. Yeah, and I think I was reading an article that a data scientist had created who was saying, I've used this stuff for my entire university career and I had no idea where it came from. And I'm not saying that we should stop using it, but just, you know, having that awareness. So I guess, yeah, again, it's coming back to context. It's it's coming back to, okay, but if we use this stuff, like we need to be aware of where it came from and its origins and, and that colour is really important in how we how we treat the science. I think that's also such an interesting, almost added perspective, because it's like, that's a really good way of looking almost as well. That it's like, we definitely need to be aware of it. But it's so interesting that with you learn about eugenics and you instantly know there is no way that this didn't come from someone who had some really bad ideas about culture. Whereas statistics, you wouldn't know, which is a really, I guess it's a really interesting dimension to add to it. It's like, you should definitely learn about that history. But it's really interesting that this person didn't realise they were using it for something completely different. Yeah, and I think actually the thing that it maybe comes to is that I don't think we should really treat eugenics as science. You know, the the scientific methods, quote unquote, that they were using weren't really scientific. And, you know, we can disprove a lot of what was said. And maybe that's what it comes back to. It's just like, that is not science, really. And I think um, the other thing you brought up a bit earlier, Max, but just like, we can't separate the science from the powers that control it. I think we also like to see science, especially, you know, science in universities and stuff we see it as like you know science for science's sake and it's all like completely perfect and just doing its thing where in reality you know we know that funding bodies like Max was saying you know the government influences what's done but also those in power within universities and stuff are kind of directing us in what's what's useful and I think that judgment is really difficult to balance with science just being true. Yeah it was really interesting that I've learned that um, basically the government are funding scientists not for the specific project that they were doing at the time but just to have the amount of scientists around that when it's needed they can have the scientists to do the specific research that they wanted to so it's more like scientists are pretty much yes you do have an idea of what you can do and what you're allowed to do but at the same time you're kind of limited by all these outside factors that what you can do and what goal that you should be achieving. It speaks to, to what what do we consider science, I guess? What Why mm. do we think it's useful to have science? Just sort of scientists, I'm imagining them like sat in the corner, like at the sprint start, ready to go as soon as the government's like, this is useful. You know, we had that very much with the pandemic. They were like, right, vaccine time. And we had the wherewithals to just run with it really quickly. But I think, I don't know, you've got that, like, is science just kind of waiting to be used by humans? Or is it, you know, should it be empirical without, should it be objective from what we want science to do for us? So I guess that's coming to, like, the pure science and 
the um, application science. You kind of need to have the background in the pure science, in the basic science, to be able to then do the application. But not many governments or organizations wanting to fund pure science because you can't see an outcome from it. There's no like, okay, so what can we use it for? And the society is going to be like, okay, why are we sending so much rocket into the space? And then why are we spending so much money in things that we can't even use? Yeah, I think it's it's that thing where it's like, it's so, you're right, Max, it's also especially when you're watching so many like crises happen across the globe and there's still so much money being pushed into science and it does like, like I love science, very, you know, interested in it, but it does sometimes beg the question of like, what is this being used for, especially when some of the goals are so long-term and although they could be amazing, like there's some amazing medical research going on that's going to change lots mm-hmm. of lives or like, you know, over the over 2020 when there was like a cure for HIV that was found. Like, that's amazing. That's so cool. But that would have come from years and years of research that would have been very heavily funded, which is great. Like it's really, that's a very important thing to have happened. I'm not like <laughs> saying that it's not, oh God, yeah, not at all. But I can imagine that we could Google loads of things and find lots of stuff that right now would be like, why are they researching that? And then in 10 years, it might be like, this is the most amazing thing ever. But it's so difficult when... There's not more pressing issues, I guess. Looking at the bigger picture, it's really interesting how it all fits together. Well, we've discussed a lot of things that, I don't know, feel very unfinished, but I don't think they're ever going to be finished. Yeah. But um, <laughs> just a lot of debate. Yeah. <laughs> We're just going to sit with this all, all this existential thought of just, we don't really have any answers, but that's, I was going to say that's fine, but I don't know. It feels very unsettled to me, personally. <laughs> I like to know the answers to things, but um, yeah. thank you so much, you guys, for joining me. thank you so much to max and nell for a really great discussion in the description you'll find the four short articles we used to prepare for this episode plus some links if you'd like to explore any of the topics we discussed in more detail remember to keep an eye on our socials for updates from susan and myself and check in next week for susan's next episode of is that science thanks for listening